0: Um, welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlik and thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. It's almost 20 years, two decades since 9-11, the, uh, the series of attacks that brought a, a new kind of terrorism in some respects on, on American soil. It seems a bit curious that in you know, two decades on, we're talking about terrorism and focusing on it again, but it's got a slightly different flavour. And that, that comes out of people examining what happened in the Capitol on January 6th when a raft of different groups got together to go into uh, the centre of American democracy. And at this warrants a bit of an explanation. and My guest today is the perfect person to give it to us. I'm talking with Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Supan Group. He's also an author of three books on the subject matter. He's written a book on finance and terrorism called Terrorism Inc. Terrorism, an essential reference guide, and also a book on uh, the death of the caliphate um, in the Middle East called After the Caliphate. Well, but we're going to explore a few themes that relate to what's been happening now and where things might go. Colin, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Absolute pleasure. Now, before we dive into all of the things that have been going on, because the world's a bit dynamic at the moment, what would your career look like to those people who don't know you yet if you had to spell it out on the back of an envelope? Yeah, well,
1: uh, I was actually, excuse me. I was uh, a college senior in uh, studying abroad at the University of Galway in Ireland, studying terrorism, actually, uh, but ethno-nationalist terrorism. I was studying the implications of the Good Friday Agreement, which had occurred three years prior. Uh, And my first day, literally my first day of class, happened to be Tuesday, September 11, 2001. Um, It was a bit of a surreal experience being abroad when that happened, especially being a New Yorker. And it really just kind of, I thrust myself into uh, terrorism studies and and studying not Western Europe, but South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and jihadi groups like Al Qaeda. Uh, So, as they say, the rest is history. But, you know, in those intervening 20 years, I've spent 10 of them a decade at the RAND Corporation, uh, you know, got my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, spent time teaching at Carnegie Mellon University. And then have been affiliated with the Sufan Center and the Sufan Group for the past several years. It's kind of amazing to me because I'm now working for Ali Sufan, who is somebody I read about in his role in you know uh, investigating the the 9/11 uh, hijackers and the attacks way back when I was a graduate student when I read Lawrence Wright's epic book The Looming Tower. So it's a bit of a kind of all things have come full circle. Um, and I continue to work on issues of terrorism. Counterterrorism uh, and political violence. Um, last several years, in addition to my work on Salafi jihadism, I've been looking at uh, white supremacy, neo Nazis, and now what we call here in the States domestic violent extremists or racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists.
0: That's an area that's of interest in Australia at the moment as well. Our federal parliament has got an inquiry that is running. In fact, Submissions are due this week looking at the area of extremism and radicalization, uh, particularly focused on right wing extremism and jihadist extremism. Now, people, I think people generally understand what we talk about when we talk about sort of global jihadism. When we look at the right-wing extremism side of life, Colin, it can get a bit hazy for people. What are the conceptual scaffolds? What's the underlying ideology, the strains of thought that we see through the, I guess, the, for want of a better term, that sort of alt-right type scenario?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I look at the far right as a very large umbrella, and you've got a number of groups that exist underneath this umbrella. Um, you've got what I would call anti-government extremists, including armed militias, and those are groups like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. Uh, you've got, um, you know, traditional racist groups like white supremacists, neo-Nazis, um, skinheads, and others. You know, and and clearly they're motivated by, you know, race, uh, hatred of African Americans, hatred of, um, you know, people uh, of various religions, Jews, Catholics. You know, they pretty much hate anyone that isn't um, like them. Then you've got, you know, one of the new wrinkles here. We've got this very strange conspiracy movement called QAnon, which you're aware about. uh, And, you know, that's it's really hard to describe QAnon. I mean, it's really a conspiracy theory. There's a heavy dose of anti-Semitism in there, um, you know, which is accommodated by this kind of broader far right umbrella. Um, you know, and then you've got people that are unaffiliated people that just kind of, uh, sample like almost like a buffet from each of these different forms of, um, extremism and they're, you know, I'd call them lone actors. Um, they believe they're part of this kind of broader movement. And th- then you've got groups like the Proud Boys, which are even harder to kind of characterize. I mean, it's kind of a, um, a misogynist ideology, uh, chauvinist, Western chauvinist, I think is how they describe themselves. So it's really a kind of grab bag of, you know, formal groups and organizations, but also individuals and movements. Very hard to kind of paint with one um, one broad brush. And I think it's important to understand the nuance, the differences, and the details that make up this kind of broader far right.
0: Let's take the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters for the moment. Um, They interest me in some respects because they tend to be uh, anti-state, don't they? They have a particular view about the Constitution, and an obligation to defend the Constitution, not necessarily those that are elected in Congress or elsewhere. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how they position themselves. Um, although, you know, I, when pressed, I, I would guarantee you that a, a healthy portion of these people have actually never read the Constitution. Um, one of the things that we witness here in the United States is people are learning their history through memes. Um, even the three percenters is a misnomer, it's based on this, you know, historical, inaccurate uh, notion that only 3% of Americans fought in the American Revolution. So there's a lot of myth. There's a lot of kind of lore, much of it historically inaccurate. Um, you know, for people that are very motivated by the Second Amendment, I, I doubt very much that they know what the Fifth or the Eighth or, right, these aren't constitutional scholars. These are people, in many respects, that you're right. They're, they're against the government. Um, But even within that, there's contradictory thinking um, that that goes along. Um, And we've seen, you know, a lot of people attracted to that. One group we didn't mention or one movement is the Boogaloo Boys, which is also very hard to, uh, you know, characterize. But they look like a militia. You know, they're armed, heavily armed, and they kind of wear Hawaiian shirts and other, um, you know, strange apparel that's linked back to Internet culture. You know, many of them are on the right, but some are on the left. Um, Some supported Black Lives Matter. Uh, so, again, I think, you know, domestic extremism, far-right extremism here in the United States in 2021, far more diverse than anything we've dealt with in quite a long time, which makes it more difficult for the authorities.
0: Is it, say, given your background, you look at jihadists um, a fair bit, how I mean, how much more difficult is it in dealing with the right-wing the sort of extreme right um, versus looking at the Jihadist uh, phenomenon, which uh, listeners to this will broadly know as being sort of Al-Qaeda in Islamic State and mm-hmm. both those two organizations still kicking around. Weston? Um,
1: we- yeah, I think um, what I would say there is, We got hit so hard by Al-Qaeda on 9-11. We spent the better part of, you know, (laughs) the next 20 years building this worldwide architecture to to fight against these organizations and their affiliates worldwide, from the Middle East to the Sahel to Southeast Asia. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of criticism that goes with the global war on terrorism. Much of it warranted, but at the same time, You know, one of the things that gets overlooked is the United States was quite effective in dismantling Al-Qaeda and and causing it to kind of fracture and, uh, you know, limiting uh, its leadership and is now, you know, working its way through the Islamic State. There's pluses and minuses there. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the caliphate's been destroyed, the physical caliphate, but ISIS lives on through its regional affiliates and, you know, could very well mount to come back at some point in um, parts of Iraq and Syria but I, I think in other ways, the domestic violent extremist threat is, is similarly challenging because, one, these are folks that aren't overseas. They're here. This is a home game for us. This is American soil, right? And with ISIS and Al-Qaeda, a big part of what we were doing was playing defense, uh, you know, trying to prevent them from getting into the country, protecting our assets overseas. Um, but now you have extremists that are on American soil and, to boot, have access to sophisticated weaponry that's not illegal to acquire. I mean, you know, the, the issue here in the United States, um, you know, we're armed to the teeth and you layer on top of that, a COVID-19 pandemic where people are anxious, they're angry, maybe they're, they've lost their jobs. Um, so it makes for a kind of toxic combination. What, one thing I will say in terms of an advantage that at least federal law enforcement has here in the U S dealing with domestic violent extremists Compared to Salafi jihadists infiltrating these groups, right, with with Al Qaeda and ISIS to try to infiltrate and, and snuff out supporters here in the U.S., there is more of a, a barrier to entry in terms of kind of understanding language, culture, history, whatever. Um, that's not the same with these militia groups. I mean, the FBI did a great job in the 1990s of infiltrating these groups. Um, and, and I expect they're going to, you know, make a concerted effort to do so and likely are doing so right now. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons here uh, compared to the jihadist fight. There's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences.
0: Well, the, the FBI would just really need to do, in the case of domestic uh, terror groups, if we can use the term loosely... To what they've done for years with, uh, with groups like the, the New York Mafia, um, it's a kind of a, um, I guess it's a thing that they're able to do. They can blend in more easily. I can imagine it'd be tough trying to infiltrate a jihadist group. Uh, period. Um, it's, it wouldn't be that wouldn't be that easy to do.
1: Yeah. And there's talk of that using the RICO laws um, in this country, racketeering and and corruption and and other elements to look at um, the domestic threat. You know, I'll I'll say as someone that's worked on terrorism financing and as someone that's now looking at this from a domestic perspective, there's a lot that we don't know. That's a major blind spot that a lot of people are looking to kind of scrounge up data on, including myself. Um, How does this movement, how do these people fund themselves? Uh, is there a connection to elements overseas? My, my gut instinct says yes, but again, you have to be able to prove it. Um, and then, you know, some of these people, they don't require much, right? So they're self-financed. They have day jobs, right? They're, they're moonlighting as anti-government extremists, uh, you know, which again is, you know, has its pros and cons. So um, I, I think we're in the very early stages of trying to wrap our heads around this problem so some people have said that, you know, what we saw at the Capitol on January six was the logical culmination of four years of Trump. But you know, I think, frankly, it's the beginning. It's not the end, and and that's unfortunate mm-hmm. because we've got let, you know, let, we've got our hands full.
0: Let, let me let me take that last observation you've just made and, and challenge it. Sure. Um, it, it, I mean, it those that argue that it's a culmination of four years of Trump might have a point. Um, Equally, there's a point in saying, well, it's possibly just the beginning. I'd argue that it's a continuum because these people have always been there, surely. Yeah, that's fair. No, I I think
1: you're right about that.
0: And the only thing that's given them currency is the cover that some of... The the rhetoric and the environment that Trump set um, up—that he's literally giving them cover to live a fantasy.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, I wrote a piece in the LA Times in late November where I said, um, uh, where I said Trump's rhetoric right, is going to lead to future violence. And people called me an alarmist and all sorts of other names. (laughs) And, you know, it it gives me no great joy to sit here and say, you know, look, I was right. Um, You know, it's like I'm sitting here trying to take a victory lap. This is my country that's being torn apart. This impacts me personally. It has in my own personal life where I've seen people, you know, that I know um, fall under the sway of, of, you know, becoming what I call MAGA zealot. I mean, people that didn't care at all about politics their whole life became rabid Trump supporters. I don't know how that happens uh, and, you know, are willing to take pretty extreme stances in some cases. So th- that's one of the things that gets lost in the media. You know, when we're talking about QAnon and the terrorist threat, real families and real friendships are being torn apart in this country. And I don't think we quite understand, you know, the damage to our social fabric, you uh, <laughs> We're in a strange place here in the United States, not only due to COVID-19, but that's a big part of it. Um, and, and it, you know, it feels, um, you know, President Biden's talked a lot about unity, and for good reason. I mean, we feel more divided uh, than, than I can remember at any point in my lifetime.
0: The interesting issue that emerges when we look at uh, the, the words you mentioned the words. You mentioned the conditioning that um, President Trump did while he was still in office. Uh, I recently wrote a piece for Crikey, a, a news organisation here, looking at the very that very topic. Um, given that an American social psychologist, Gordon Allport, spelt a lot of this out back in 1954 in his book *The Nature of Prejudice*, and the words have consequences, don't they?
1: <laughs> yeah, words do matter. And I think that's something we've struggled to realize here in the United States. You know, Obviously, we have the First Amendment, and, and we, we value that dearly. Uh, but one of the things that, unfortunately, I've noticed in our culture is a lack of accountability. Uh, elites are no longer, I don't know if they ever were, but they're certainly now not held accountable. And that's not only on Wall Street or in Hollywood, but it's in the U.S. government. If you look at some of the rhetorical support provided to the insurrectionists on January 6th, that was coming from people in Congress that were enabling that and facilitating it and encouraging it. But there's no sanction for these people. So, what would prevent them from doing it again? Um, you know, and, and words do matter. We had, you know, President Trump, who has, you know, arguably the biggest bully pulpit in the world, uh, for four years saying things that provided comfort and quarter to elements of of the far right I mean after Charlottesville it was good people on both sides that was a dog whistle by his debate with President Biden it was stand back and stand by to the proud boys so it grew into a bullhorn um, you know and and he was criticized in the media but he was certainly never held accountable by his own party who were scared of him um, and and the, the popularity that he had amongst his base. So, again, I, I don't think this is over by any stretch. I mean, I think we're, we're highly divided. Many people in this country erroneously believe that the election was stolen, which there's no evidence of. And they see the Biden il- uh, administration as illegitimate. And, you know, if you studied the history of terrorism, insurgency and political violence, illegitimacy is a motivating factor for people that go on to commit violent acts. They think that they have right on their side.
0: There's another uh, interesting issue that arises when we talk about uh, terrorism in the modern day, and that is electronic communication, uh, particularly social media, but increasingly encrypted apps. Uh, How do you see the the trend uh, that, that we've noticed, both in the case of Facebook and Twitter, of de-platforming certain actors, but those actors then going into other areas, finding homes on Telegram, on Gab, and elsewhere, they never really go away, do they?
1: No, they're pushed to more, you know, marginalized or fringe platforms uh, where they become more difficult to monitor in some cases. Um, But I'm still, you know, of the mind that getting them off these mainstream platforms is better in the long run. Uh, because they're not able to reach as many people, uh, but it's going to be a constant cat and mouse game. There's there's no question about it, um, and I think you know as encryption continues to be a debated issue, um, we're, we're likely to see a uh, move further in that direction. Right, as people value privacy over you know security or whatever the trade off is. It's not that simple. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley is not super popular at the moment in the United States you know particularly for hosting and proliferating disinformation so I think this you know this tech security nexus is something that will be um, you know really one of the defining issues uh, at least in terrorism over the next four or five years
0: it seems to be a challenge to manage some of the the uh, more extreme material being distributed though on, on encrypted apps. You could Once you remove someone from a, a Facebook, for example, um, and you keep them away from a broader audience, you're still able to um, groom, if you like, a core, and it doesn't take many people to do harm. And it's one of the things that uh, I've come across in looking at, at public channels on Telegram where even the the footage of the Christchurch massacre back in March 2019, no longer available on Facebook. It it was streamed on Facebook, but there are copies of it everywhere. And and I wrote about it last year in in the same online news service, and that's a particular concern um, for me in any case. How do you see that... Ability for people to get groomed, you know, outside of the, the purview or, or, um, of, a, of a general kind of monitoring.
1: Yeah, it's just one of those things that I think, you know, as counterterrorism analysts and practitioners, we have to understand that we're never going to get to zero. We're never going to reduce all attacks, right? It's not about defeating terrorism. It's one of the reasons I thought the, the global war on terrorism as a name was so counterproductive, right? It suggests an end. Um, it's a tactic. We're never going to fully defeat terrorism. And frankly, we're unlikely to defeat terrorist networks like Al-Qaeda um, you know, or, or ISIS. So I look at it the same way. We're never going to be able to fully remove these videos and images from the internet, can we mitigate their presence? That's the real question, and can we, you know, mitigate them from motivating people to be copycats or to, you know, to use as uh, motivation, you know? And, and that's that's hard, if not impossible, to do. Um, you know, you could probably still find Anwar Al-Awlaki videos online, and we know how important he was as a motivator to you know individuals who committed a number of jihadi attacks. Look at Alex Hitchen's book, Incitement. Uh, which is a kind of, you know, real, one of the the best case studies out there on on this topic.
0: Yeah, I'm well aware of uh, the the, the issues that uh, and marie Allen-Lucky posed, um, and certainly well aware of what happened to him as a consequence. You mentioned the notion of minimizing the impact, which I think it probably, the um, we're talking about the principle of containment. How do we contain this as opposed to eliminate it? Uh, how effective do you think the approach taken by the Canadian government recently to prescribe organisations like uh, the Adam Waffen uh, Division, uh, the Proud Boys, uh, the Russian Imperial Movement, uh, and, and some others, uh, is in trying to contain? Those organisations and their activity. Sorry, can you repeat that last part? I'll cut out for a sec. How do you? How important do you think uh, the approach to prescribing organisations the way Canada has done is to trying to contain these groups?
1: Yeah, I think it is important. Um, you know, and I'm I'm aware of there, there's kind of multiple sides here in the debate. Uh, people that are a bit more reluctant to start prescribing groups because they are concerned that uh, this could be abused, right, and that politicians could start prescribing you know groups that aren't really terrorist groups but are kind of more political adversaries and and you know or just using designation as a, a tool in an unwieldy way. I mean that's a big part of the debate here in the United States now. Do we need new laws to deal with this threat? Um, You know, one school of thought says, no, we have the laws we need. We just need to begin enforcing them um, and suggesting it's a matter of political will. Uh, Others say we need a brand new domestic terrorism statute that is the equivalent of an FTO designation, foreign terrorist organization uh, designation that the State Department has. And yet others, um, and this is something that I kind of advocated in a piece that I wrote in The New York Times a few weeks ago, advocate making domestic terrorism a federal crime. Which is a kind of middle ground between you know not doing anything and um, passing you know a new statute. It gives law enforcement more tools and more resources, uh, but it stops short of you know creating a domestic terrorism statute. I'm also on the record of saying, look, I'm not a legal scholar, so I'm willing to have this debate. Let's be transparent about it. Let's bring in all the experts and the smartest people working on this topic, and let's do what a democracy does and and debate it. And, you know, vote on it and, and make sure that we know what the pitfalls are, what the advantages are. Like, we're, why don't we have these debates anymore? I hope we will. I You know, the Biden administration has a real sense of urgency about this threat. Um, and I know really smart people, you know, very uh, de- people that are dedicated to the United States and national security working on this topic. So I'm hopeful, uh, more hopeful than I've been in some time, that we can make progress in this on this topic uh, in this area, you know, by the end of the year.
0: One of the most important things uh, that we need to understand uh, about the phenomenon we're talking about is how we deal with it uh, today, but also how we deal with it in the future. Uh, How important is it for the education system in countries like the United States and I guess even in Australia to ensure that people are are taught critical thinking, are taught philosophy, are taught comparative religion um, in order to start breaking down the aspects of fear, um, lack of understanding. Because a lot of what we see in terrorism Appears to be related to um, certain bad actors playing on other people's vulnerabilities and fear to recruit them uh, to a cause. How do we break that down?
1: It's a huge component. Uh, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. The problem is, and I, I don't know if it's a problem as much as a challenge, this is a long term issue. This is education is critical, but it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's a generational change. I'll go back to the you know, my comment earlier of people are learning history through memes. That includes not only how people are learning American history, but how they're learning world history. One of the things we're seeing now is that the younger generation knows very little about the Holocaust. Now, why is that? Is it not being taught in schools the same way? I mean, when I went to school, that was you know, a big part of our education was learning about this horrific world event so as not to repeat it and to learn about, you know, the, the real crimes that took place. I mean, uh, it, it was horrific, as you know, but kids today are being introduced to this event through memes that sometimes soft play, you know, soft pedal it or downplay it. And we see it, you know, being turned into um, a joke that white supremacists then kind of use in, in meme form to kind of uh, get people to laugh. And if you're willing to laugh at 6 million people being killed what else are you willing to believe or laugh at? Um, you know, and we know that anti-Semitism is a huge component of of the far right. I mean, just look at the clothing of some of the individuals that were at the Capitol. One guy had a shirt that said Camp Auschwitz. You know, other people were holding signs that said six million wasn't enough in reference to the number of Jews killed. I mean, just really, you know, base, <laughs> uh, abhorrent type uh, behavior from American citizens. Um, and I do think quite a bit of this has to go, you know, goes back to education and then also disinformation, QAnon, right? Like digital literacy is something that's lacking in this country at all age levels and all kind of, uh, socioeconomic and, and demographic, uh, backgrounds. So that's something that needs to change too.
0: Edible, of all of it, we, we've outlined a whole bunch of stuff, uh, in that response, um, what is it the what what do you think ought to be the first thing that, that uh, authorities need to touch on I
1: think identifying you know the most violent actors in this movement and you know seeing what what crimes they've committed first i I would demand accountability for the actions of January 6th and and the FBI's you know in the process of doing that but then kind of mapping out these networks look don't we talk about international terrorism and domestic terrorism just because you're an american you don't get a free pass like you don't get treated with kid gloves let's treat this let's be agnostic to the ideology that motivates terrorism while at the same time understanding it or trying to understand it but terrorism is terrorism and these people need to be held accountable right And we wouldn't let international te- uh, networks proliferate overseas so why would we let them you know manifest in Uh, you know, catalyze on U.S. soil. We shouldn't.
0: It's a problem uh, at the heart of all of this, that there are white people doing things that we oftentimes look into the Middle East and see people that we call another doing.
1: I think that's part of it. I mean, that's that's been... um, no question, that's been a struggle here in the United States. With the, that, this is um, no longer a minority issue. Um, there's a double standard, and anyone tells you that there is it is lying uh, or simply confused. I mean, go go to the Nashville uh, bombing on Christmas Day. There was a bombing in a major American city that could have killed a lot of people. I mean, we're lucky that it didn't. That individual was reported by his girlfriend the year before that he was building a bomb in his trailer. Now. If that was a Muslim guy or a brown guy, he wouldn't have had a second chance to, de- to detonate it. He would have been investigated and probably arrested. You know, So there's long been a double standard the way that we look at terrorism. I hope that's changing. It needs to change um, because insurrectionists should be given no quarter. Uh, this is a country that stands for um, democracy, human rights, the rule of law, and that, that needs to be applied across the board.
0: Uh, Colin, I'm very mindful of the time, uh, and you've been very gracious with, uh, with your time today. Uh, before we close off, uh, you've got three books that you've written. They all cover the area of terrorism. Where can people uh, get the – they want to follow through after they listen to this? Where can people buy them?
1: Um, they should all be available on Amazon.com. Um, the uh, Terrorism Inc. and the Essential Reference Guide are both through ABC Clio, uh, Prager Security International, and After the Caliphate is published by Polity Press in the UK.
0: The other thing you obviously, when I introduced you, I spoke about the Superman Group. Uh, There's an excellent resource that comes out every single day from the Superman Center which is the Intelli Brief, I encourage people to go to the Superman Center's website and subscribe. I read it every day, Colin. Thanks. That's flattering. Um, I have to. Uh, it's one of the things that I read. It, you know, it comes out early in the evening. I look at it every day. Today's one was fantastic. Uh, Colin, thank you for joining me. It's been an insightful. and It's been an absolute privilege to chat with you today. Uh, Pleasure's been mine. Look forward to chatting again. Oh, look, let's do it uh, again before long. uh, But again, thank you so much. Thank you.